Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, Raven here. I listen to podcasts all the time. While I'm biking to work, when I'm in the lab, working in the greenhouse, cooking, doing dishes, just all the time. Because of this, I'm really hard on my headphones. I used to go through many pairs of headphones and earbuds every year. My husband teases me by keeping a drawer full of -of out-of-commission headphones. But he can't tease me anymore. When Studio, a Swedish company, started sponsoring Agora Podcasts, I got a pair of Regent headphones. They are sturdy, made of metal instead of breakable little plastic bits, but they're still stylish and professional-looking. If you or someone on your holiday list needs a new pair of headphones, you can get 15% off by using my code TINY when you check out at studiosweden.com. That's studio like studio, but without a T, sweden.com. Welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is episode 14, The Repellent Deet and Ticks. I'm Raven Forrest Riscalzo, your host. Happy holidays! As a holiday treat, I decided to put December's episode out early. Uh, Now you'll be able to tell interesting stories about ticks and mosquitoes at all of your holiday parties and get out of awkward conversations about politics. I'm also doing it early because the sound booth that I use, which is in the library here at Notre Dame, is getting moved from this uh, loud section of the library into a quieter section. So hopefully you'll be hearing a lot less student chatter in the background and uh, everything will come out cleaner. This episode is the second one on the insect repellent DEET, which was suggested by my husband, Ben. I suggest that you listen to episode 13 about DEET and mosquitoes first before listening to this episode. There's a lot of things that will be explained there that I'm not going to explain here. Ticks and mosquitoes are very different. We have to investigate ticks' reaction to DEET and not just assume that they're like mosquitoes. 
Mosquitoes are insects. They have three body segments and three pairs of legs, whereas ticks are arachnids like spiders. They have four pairs of legs. Well, most of the time. One really weird thing about ticks is that when they're very young, just out of the egg, they only have three pairs of legs. It isn't until after their first molt that they grow their fourth pair of legs. But I digress. Either way, ticks are arachnids. Last time we talked about the difference between gustatory receptors used for taste, olfactory receptors used for smelling some kinds of chemicals, and ionotropic receptors used for smelling other kinds of chemicals. Just like in the mosquitoes, the researchers sought to figure out which of these sensory system ticks were using to sense and avoid DEET. Unlike with well-studied insects, biologists didn't know which organ the ticks were actually using to detect DEET, so they had to really start from scratch. But before we get into the papers, I want to talk about another aspect of smell in general. Cells make up every living thing. They have a layer of oil surrounding them, keeping their insides in and their outsides out. The inside of the cell is very wet. To function properly, cells have to stay moist. This is true for the neurons that we use to smell in our noses. Our body produces mucus, which is mostly water, to keep these cells wet. When the particles of smell drift by, they have to dissolve into the mucus to get to the neurons. With some chemicals, this isn't a problem because they easily dissolve in water. But other chemicals are like oil. They don't dissolve in water, so we wouldn't be able to smell them unless we changed something. Mammals like us have fixed this problem by creating molecules called lipocalins. And insects solved it by creating molecules called odorant-binding proteins. Both of these molecules attached to insoluble molecules of smell, making it so that they can dissolve in the watery region around the neurons. Then, shuttle the scent molecule over to the receptor on the surface of the neuron. Once enough of these scent molecules interact with the receptors, the neuron fires a signal off to the brain, which we experience as smell. So there are two types of proteins that we're going to be talking about today. The receptors that live in the surface of the neuron, they bind to molecules and tell the neuron when to fire. The other group are the proteins, lipocalins or odorant binding proteins, that float around in the fluid surrounding the neurons and pick up scent molecules and shuttle them over to the neuron because they can't get there by themselves. These proteins, like all proteins that make up any organism, are coded for by the organism's DNA. What I mean by that is that the A's, T's, G's, and C's that make up the DNA are instructions for how to put together the amino acids, or the building blocks of the proteins, into the right order to make, say, an odorant binding protein. Every cell in an organism's body holds all of the code for the entire organism. Wouldn't be very efficient to read the whole code just to get the instructions for one protein. So the cells make a kind of copy 
with just the section it needs, which is referred to as a gene. This copy is messenger RNA. The RNA is read by a protein called a ribosome, which builds the protein according to these instructions. This all may seem like a major digression, but we'll need all this information when we get to the paper. The journal article today was written by Carr et al. just this year, and is called Tick Holler's Organ, a new paradigm for arthropod olfaction. How do ticks differ from insects? Starting off with what Carr and her team knew. Ticks have very poor eyesight, so they use chemical signals from their surroundings to navigate their world. The chemical sensory system of ticks hasn't been very well studied, but we know that there's two sets of organs that have been identified as chemosensory, or sensing chemicals. The Holler's organ on the frontmost pair of legs, and the pedipalps, which cover the tick's tube-like mouthparts. Of these two, the Holler's organ seems to be the most important, as other researchers have found that ticks use them to find their victims, mates, and other things in their environment. It's also interesting because no other animals have this organ, only ticks. The car group wanted to answer three questions. First, is the Holler's organ being used as a gustatory, taste, olfactory, smell, or ionotropic organ? Or maybe a combination of these, like in the antennae of insects. Two, how is the tick detecting DEET? And three, is the tick using the Holler's organ to decide where to bite and latch on? To answer the first question, they had to do some clever molecular detective work. While animals look very different from the large scale, if you looked at a tick neuron and a human neuron, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. Genetically speaking, this is also true. The code for a receptor for a particular scent molecule in a mouse is pretty much the same as the code for that receptor in a human. Carr's team used this fact to their advantage. They could compare the code in the tick to known codes in other animals, like insects and mammals, to see if they could find gustatory receptors, olfactory receptors, or ionotropic receptors. One problem, though. Every cell in the tick has the same DNA. So, the cells of the Holler's organ and the cells everywhere else in the tick are going to have the same code. It won't tell you which genes the Holler's organ is actually using. Even though the DNA in every cell type is the same, the messenger RNA in every cell type is different. It represents the proteins that cell is making. So some of those proteins will be the receptors that we're interested in looking at. Putting it another way is using the building analogy that I've used in previous episodes. Picture a house. It's all framed up, and they have walls, but there isn't anything in the room to define it. In each room is a giant book of instructions. This is the DNA. It has all of the information for building the entire house. Each room has a copy of this book. You want to know which space in the house is going to be used as the kitchen. Looking at the book won't tell you anything because all the rooms have the same book. 
but the workers who are building the room have notebooks sitting there also. These are the copies of the instructions that's just for that particular room. Looking in there, you can compare what you know about kitchens to what you read in their notes. The messenger RNA is the notes. It's all the information the researchers need to know about what proteins those cells are making. So they extracted all the messenger RNA out of the part of the tick's leg that has the hauler's organ. Then they used a machine to sequence all of these RNAs, discovering all of the A's, G's, C's, and U's. RNA has U's instead of T's. That make up their code. This is still too much information, though. These cells aren't only making receptors. The cells in the legs are making muscle proteins and, and exoskeleton proteins and all manner of other things the tick needs to keep its leg alive and healthy. The researchers need to filter out all of the messenger RNA that was instructions for things that had nothing to do with chemical sensing. They did this by sequencing all of the messenger RNA out of one of the back legs, which don't have the Holler's organ, and then subtracting those sequences from all of the ones that they found in the first leg, which does have the Holler's organ. In other words, the difference between the RNA in a leg with the Holler's organ and all of the DNA in a leg without the organ should give you all of the messenger RNA that comes from the Holler's organ. What they ended up with was a much smaller set of messenger RNA codes. They used a computer to search through all of these codes, looking for the codes that look like the instructions to make gustatory receptors and ionotropic receptors, and they found that nothing matched. But they did find codes for olfactory receptors. So they determined that the ticks are using the holler's organ to smell the air, attracting them to their next blood meal. There was something else interesting that they found. Well, more like something they didn't find. When they looked for the codes for odorant-binding protein molecules, the ones that shuttle insoluble scents through the liquid onto the surrounding neurons, they didn't find anything. So... Carr and her team looked to see if maybe ticks are more like us, and they used lipocalins instead. But they didn't find any code for that either. This means that ticks either can't smell molecules that don't dissolve in water, which is very unlikely, or they use a molecule that we've never seen before to shuttle these odorants through, which is pretty cool. Carr answered the first question. Is the Holler's organ being used for smell or taste or both? So we now know they use it for smell. Their next question gets us back to the topic of the episode. How is the tick detecting DEET? For this, they conducted a pretty straightforward behavioral experiment. Carr clipped off the front legs of one group of ticks so they couldn't use their holler's organ. Then they clipped off the rearmost legs from other ticks so that they would still have their holler's organ, 
but they would have the same stress and difficulty walking as the other ticks. Then, they put these two groups of ticks in large petri dishes. Half of the floor of the dish was covered in paper with DEET on it, and the other half was DEET-free. Every five minutes, they checked on the tick to see which side of the dish they were on. The ticks without their hauler's organ were found standing anywhere in the dish, while the ticks that still had their hauler's organ were only found on the side without DEET. A reasonable conclusion to draw from this is that the ticks were using their hauler's organ to smell the DEET and avoid it, but without the organ, they couldn't tell where the DEET was, so they would just stand anywhere randomly around the dish. The last thing Carr's group investigated was if the ticks use the hauler's organ to decide where to bite and latch on. This is the question I think most people would be most interested in. We already knew from previous work that they are using this organ to detect their prey, but once the tick is on a person or a dog, how does it know where to bite? The researchers did another kind of behavior experiment. Just like before, they removed either the frontmost or the backmost leg of two groups of ticks. The ticks were placed in a plastic dome that was glued to the back leg of a rabbit using veterinary glue. The researchers checked to see which ticks were attached over the course of 24 hours. Because rabbits have dealt with ticks in the wild for so long, they don't really seem to be bothered by them that much. Still, vets came in multiple times to make sure the rabbits were in no discomfort. What Carr et al. found from this experiment was that ticks with and without the hauler's organ seemed to attach just as often. They thought that this might mean that the ticks are using a different chemical sensing organ. So they repeated the experiment, removing the pedipalps instead of the hauler's organ. They found that far fewer ticks attached. To be skeptical, as all good scientists are, because pedipalps are so close to the mouth of the tick, the parts may somehow be important for biting. So just based on this, we can't really say that they are necessarily being used for chemosensing. But their results do lead to another important question. It's possible that ticks may avoid a person who's using insect repellent and not seek them out. But if they're already on a person, the DEET may not deter them from biting. As far as I know, this experiment has not been conducted yet. Like the mosquito research we talked about last month, this research was funded by a grant from the National Institute of Health, and this one was also funded by the National Science Foundation. And also like the mosquito work, we're still discovering how DEET is affecting ticks on the most fundamental levels. But knowing what we know now can lead scientists to a repellent that also works on the pedipalps and the hauler's organ possibly not only preventing ticks from attraction to humans, but also preventing biting. That's it for the science. December's Agora Podcast of the Month 
is a new network member, History of Westeros. It is about the hit George R. R. Martin book and TV series Game of Thrones. If you are a GOT fan, I highly recommend that you check it out. I hope that you found and continue to find this podcast informative. Don't forget to let your Spanish-speaking friends and family know that you can also find Tiny Vampires in Espanol. The website for this episode, number 14, has videos on how RNA is sequenced, some closer looks at tick anatomy, and a link to today's paper, along with other show notes and music credits. Tweet your topic suggestions to me at tinyvampirespod, or send me a note via the contact section of the website. Thank you so much for listening. From me, Raven Forrest Riscalzo, Master of Science to the University of Notre Dame, and funded by the National Science Foundation. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.